And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virtual Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today, kicking off a brand new broadcast week here in the Midwest Command Center. Learning how to explain, defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. Got a great show in store for us. We're going to continue our discussion with Ken Litchfield, the author of How Old Is Your Church? We're going to continue to answer common objections, both common and uh, not so common objections. That is what you do when you defend the faith. And uh, we're always glad to have Ken back in the studio and uh, field some of these questions for us. So that's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with the Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the Inflation of Conflict Fallacy. And also, we meet an early church father. Today's early church father. Very interesting one. It is a very, very early church father. A church father that we know a little bit about. But um, he only has one surviving document. And it's hard to describe this document. It's uh, kind of like a whole bunch of private revelations. And it is the Shepherd of Hermas. So we're going to talk about the Shepherd of Hermas coming up. Actually, you know, Shepherd of Hermas, by the way, was one of those documents that, at least in some areas, was thought to be actually part of the New Testament. And uh, you'll see this in some New Testament canonical list and uh, quotation from the early church fathers. They thought very highly of this book. Of course, it's not an inspired book, and ultimately it was uh, rejected along with all the other apocryphal works in church councils of Carthage and Hippo in the 4th century. But nevertheless, uh, it was revered, and uh, it's something that we should be familiar with. Uh, It does have some apologetic nuggets in that it does show us what was believed very early in the church, the Shepherd of Hermas. So all of that's going to be coming up on this side of the break. But before we do that, I want to welcome all of you to the show. So I hope all of you had a great weekend, all of you listening on radio. And, of course, the live stream peeps, howdy, and all of you listening on podcasts, both now and in the future. It's great to have you on board. Yeah, it, it was a busy weekend. I'm still trying to dig my way out of it. It just seems like things just keep piling and piling up. Hey, good news, though, on my brand new book, The Gospel Truth, How You Can Know What Christ Taught, put out by Emmaus Road Press. Actually been getting some emails from people who purchased the book, which is kind of surprising because uh, I normally don't get responses from my readers uh, from the book uh, until much, much later when it's generally circulating. But uh, this just came out a couple of months ago. And already getting some positive feedback. So that's awesome. I'm very glad to hear that. Also, uh, we're going to have an official come out date. We're going to try to do a promotion blast and so on coming up early June. So, um, yeah. So check it out. I'm sure sometime in the near future I'm going to be on the show 
I already spotlighted some aspects of the book, and I'm going to do a little bit more, too, just to kind of get the word out, because this book has been in the works for a number of years, and I think it's a good defense for the Gospels. And I, I show a whole bunch of things that scholars have, you know, not, almost none of it is controversial in the scholarship, but people just aren't aware of it. And so I kind of bring out some of these little known facts and to show that, yeah, well, there's actually really good grounds for believing that what's said in the Gospels is true. In fact, let me tell you a story. As you might well know, I teach apologetics for homeschool connections. So it's online apologetics course for homeschoolers. And I teach uh, apologetics, of course, and then a couple of history and catechetical classes. And uh, I was... I uh, received an email from a uh, woman who wants her son to join my class because he's a self-professed atheist. Now, this is someone, you know, early in high school, already is calling himself um, an atheist. And so we're talking like someone just out of grade school into high school. And I, I expressed my concerns about whether, you know, apologetic class where I'm teaching Catholic kids how to defend the faith, whether that would be helpful for him or confusing. But anyway, she sent me an email and she said, you know, the thing that he's really concerned about is he doesn't believe that there's any um, reliable information about Jesus. And uh, I thought, man, hey, this is, <laughs> this book is ripe for him. I, I, I was glad to know that uh, I wrote on a topic that is needed today. And so I recommended that she picks up the book and, uh, some other things as well. So I was glad to help her out as best as I could. But uh, yeah, so this is a hot button topic. There's a lot of skeptics on social media that will uh, downplay the reliability of uh, the Gospels and, and even go as far as to deny that Jesus even existed. So, <laughs> so if you know a skeptic in your life, I actually wrote this book kind of for someone who maybe has heard some disturbing things about the Gospels. They're not really sure whether or not it's true. What positive reasons do we have for the Gospels? Uh, I think this is the book for them. So it's called The Gospel Truth, How You Can Know What Christ Taught. It's put out by Emmaus Road Press. So uh, just want, sorry for the little commercial there, but, you know, it, sometimes you have to toot one's horn in order to let people know that you have a horn. Right. <laughs> I, I've learned that the hard way. I hate talking about myself, and but I do love supplying people with information that helps them out. So uh, so if you're interested, check it out. You could go to St. Paul Center. I believe it's dot com and uh, read up on it and all the other great books that uh, Mace Road puts out. Okay. Uh, oh, I didn't even share the official Dojo mailbox, by the way, if you want to get a hold of me. It's questions at handsonapologetics.com. All right. Now let's go to finding the fallacy, shall we? Today's finding the fallacy is the inflation of conflict fallacy. The reasoning that because authorities can't agree precisely on an issue, no conclusions can be reached at all and minimizing the credibility of authorities as a result. Uh, in other words, because uh, authorities don't agree on every particular aspect of something, the inflation of conflict fallacy is that that whole field must be disregarded. 
Okay. So unless you have perfect unif uniformity or unanimity on a field, it's not worthy of credence. Uh, and, of course, that's not true. I mean, uh, you can have substantial agreement amongst the scholars, and the things they differ may be uh, fringe issues. So uh, a field may be rock solid. Uh, it's just maybe some of the details just aren't known and there needs some speculation. So I think the inflation of conflict fallacy absolutely enters into apologetic discussions. Uh, you see this a lot with New Testament scholarship, that uh, because New Testament scholars disagree on the interpretation or the meaning of certain passages, therefore, uh, the, you can't know anything about the uh, text or the whole endeavor of trying to interpret the text is uh, a waste of time. That would be a good example of today's fallacy, which is the inflation of conflict fallacy. Let's meet our early church father for today. Like I said, it is Hermas. Uh, the Muratorian fragment is responsible for the information that Hermas, the author of The Shepherd, was the brother of Pope St. Pius I, who reigned from AD 140-155. From The Shepherd itself, a few other uh, items of curious information reveal themselves about Hermas. For example, he was a slave and afterwards a freeman. He had a farm on a highway between uh, Rome and Cume. And, but lost his business in reverses. His children apostatized and betrayed him in the persecutions. His wife had an unbridled tongue, and so on. In fact, Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers notes that we have uh, many quite delightful things about him, but in the dry category of what often passes as useful information, we are, in, in Hermes's case, quite at a loss. Which perhaps is no great loss at all, says Jurgen's Faith of the Holy Fathers. Um, his sole existing work that we have from Hermas is The Shepherd. And uh, The Shepherd is a rather lengthy work belonging to the category of apocryphal apocalypses. Now, that's, don't confuse that with my YouTube channel, Apocrypha Apocalypse. Uh, the work consists of three large sections, the first divided into five chapters called Visions, the second into 12 chapters called Mandates, and the third into 10 chapters called Parables. The work is important for its ethical concepts and for its bearing on the sacrament of penance. Accepting the statement of the anonymous author, in the Muratorian fragment that the work was written by at Rome by Hermas. Um, itself poses a, a problem because in his the section Visions 2, 4, 3 of the Shepherd, uh, it's implied that Clement, Pope St. Clement of Rome was still alive when he was writing. And so that uh, Clement of Rome, who he referred to, cannot, uh, it can't be doubted that's who he was referring to, so, in other words, there's a conflict of dates because Pope St. Clement ruled much earlier than, obviously, during the reign of Pius I. So, uh, anyway, there's lots of ways in which this problem can be resolved. And, uh, yeah, that's our early church father for today, uh, Hermas, author of The Shepherd of Hermas. Coming up next, we're going to be chatting with Ken Litchfield. We're going to be answering common objections. More to come right after this. Stay tuned. 
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. And if you're going to be a defender of the faith, you need to be able to answer common objections and even some not-so-common objections. And to help us do that, we have our good friend Ken Litchfield with us. Ken, as you know, uh, after reading the Left Behind books, decided to study his faith in depth. And as a result, he got hooked on apologetics, and the rest is history. Uh, Ken has uh, appeared on all sorts of different uh, social media mediums, uh, fielding questions for uh, Catholic Answers, uh, Bible Christian Society, and so on. He's also the author of the book, How Old Is Your Church? And Ken Litchfield, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having me back. Uh, Really love being on the show with you. Um, I'm thinking we're going to have to rename the show the Gary and Ken Show now. It's <laughs> my third week in a row. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, we love having you on the show. And, uh, and you know, that is, uh, answering objections is the name of the game, right? I mean, if you're going to be defending the faith, you got to be able to field objections. And uh, of all the people I know, I mean, you're in the trenches on social media, answering questions, and you developed a huge library. So, you know, we, we're very grateful to have you on the show and, and for your flexibility coming on. Um, like I say, I'm really glad to be here. And, you know, fortunately, some good material has come in since the last show. So, you know, awesome. we have great stuff for the folks today, too. Yeah. Now, before we begin, you know, every now and then I ask you this just because I, I love living vicariously through my guest. Uh, you restore uh, uh, automobiles. Uh, what are you working on right now? Right now, I'm working primarily on a 1953 Packard Caribbean. Uh, they took the regular Packard and kind of modified it uh, by extending the rear fenders and adding a rear spare tire and some extra chrome trim and i'm mostly doing the interior i did some electrical and work and finishing up some things in the engine bay okay. but uh, yeah. mostly the interior um, originally i was just going to do the carpet but the whole rest of the interior is kind of dicey so doing the whole interior now nice yeah i have never i've never heard of the caribbean so that's interesting. So that that's uh, so it's extended uh, rear and uh, yeah, that, how cool! Uh, <laughs> like I said, I, I love living vicariously through my guest. Uh, that, that's such an interesting line of work. As is, you know, doing apologetics as well. So uh, again, um, you know, I should probably also rem- remind the guest, or excuse me, remind the audience that uh, you're on social media a lot. And uh, you talk to people all over the world through it. Yes. Um, I was talking with my friend Kashif over in Pakistan just uh, on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, got a good question from him that hopefully we can get to today also. Awesome. Okay, well, uh, we'll begin wherever you'd like. Okay. Well, uh, let's see. Tim T. asked, you know, this question is faith a work, and then he refers to Ephesians chapter two that Protestants love to point at. Um, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing; it is a gift. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Okay. And so the Protestants always like to stop at, you know, they quote eight and nine. But if you just go on to the next verse, uh, verse 10, it says, for we are what he has made us created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Mm-hmm. So um, as Catholics, of course, we can agree that we are saved by God's grace and we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, what Protestants will, you know, because the foundation is Martin Luther, you know, when he read Romans chapter 3, where it says we're saved by faith and not by works of the law. And we'll get into the works of the law in a little bit. So he started the new tradition that we're saved by faith alone, even though there's nowhere in the Bible that says we're saved by faith alone. And then John Calvin came along the next generation and he said, uh, you know, because he wanted to give all glory to God, which was a good intention, you know, he said he taught that we're saved by God's grace alone. And as Catholics, you know, we can agree with both Martin Luther and John Calvin that we are saved by God's grace and we are saved by Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ. But since we also use verse 10, because we use the whole Bible, uh, we recognize that God has works for us to do. Mm-hmm. And the, the way it works is like, you know, baptism makes us a member of the body of Christ. So the works we do as a member of the body of Christ are Jesus' works, done through us. So they're not our works, they're Jesus' works. And we're like his hands and feet in this world, living as he calls us to do. But because Protestantism is so much based on this idea that works can't save you, even though James chapter 2 tells us... (laughs) You know, you're a fool if you think that you're saved by faith alone. Uh, yeah. Three times it tells us that we're saved by works and not by faith alone. So Protestants have that real big problem with James chapter 2. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I tell my students that uh, I actually have to memorize Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Because uh, it, it comes up so often that you really should be able to, to roll that off your tongue, right? Uh, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast, for we are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus for the good works. And so you can see where it's at the, at the beginning he says it's not by works. And then in verse 10 it says, and it's for the works that we should walk in them. And like you said, which pairs perfectly with James. So uh, apparently, uh, Ken, uh, there's no conflict between Paul and James. Exactly. You know, <laughs> Protestants, you know, tried to make a a conflict there, but um, and it's because they start with Martin Luther's faith tradition and not, you know, what the Bible actually says and what the church actually taught for 1,500 years before Martin Luther came along. Um, right. And the thing that, 
you know, we have to get through to them and that we always have to keep in mind is that when Paul is talking about works, or sometimes he talks about the law, hmm. and the, it's all just kind of like shortcut um, terminology for the works of the law. Hmm. And the, actually, the, uh, the group that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, they talk about the works of the law there. And, you know, he tells, they tell the Jewish leaders that, you know, doing those works of charity are good, you know, for the Jews to do. But the because the temple has been corrupted, uh, because the uh, Ark of the Covenant is no longer there and the priesthood that's there is not actually um, from the tribe of Judah and things like that, uh, or the tribes of um, Levi. Levi, yes. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> they don't actually have a Levitical priesthood, but they have the offices. Um, and they're doing the best they can, I guess. Um, although, you know, they compromise with Herod and the Romans, you know, in order to save the temple, which eventually gets destroyed anyway. Um, so we, if we just go back to fundamentals, uh, Jesus' last command to his apostles in Matthew chapter 8, or 28, is to go out and teach everything he taught them and to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he promises to be with his church until the end of the age. And then just 10 days later, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, you know, Peter makes the first converts. You know, he, he tells them all about, you know, what they did to Jesus and, you know, how they crucified him and, you know, and Jesus taught these things that they should have caught on to. Um, so after the Jews hear all this, uh, starting in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorting them saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 persons were added, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Mm -hmm. So 10 days after Jesus ascends to he into heaven, 3,000 people are added to the church through baptism, which forgives their sins and gives them the Holy Spirit and the promises for their children also. Mm -hmm. Yet, um, our Protestant brothers and sisters have been taught that there's no works that save you. <laughs> and the first Christians were saved through baptism, which forgives their sins and makes them a member of the church. Um, and again, going back to Romans and Martin Luther's theology, you know, 
he taught that they're, um, well, he mentions a lot of parts. Paul talks about where Abraham did things and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Protestants developed this theology that um, God's righteousness is imputed to us and we're still sinners, but we just look like we've been saved. And Martin Luther used the analogy of snow over a dunghill. Um, and John Calvin talked about how, you know, we're all, uh, let's see, we're all condemned in Christ, or we're all condemned, and God's righteousness is just imputed to us. And since Jesus did everything, you know, there's nothing we can do for our salvation. And therefore, since Jesus saved us, he can't do anything wrong, so we must be saved. Right. Yeah, actually, uh, I hear the music coming up, Ken. Why don't we hit pause right there? We're chatting with Ken Litchfield, author of the book, How Old Is Your Church? More to come right after this. Stay tuned. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Ken Litchfield, author of How Old Is Your Church? Talking about answering common objections. And uh, the first objection come up was based on Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And Ken, right before the break, you were talking about uh, this idea of imputed righteousness, where God calls us righteous, even though we're not righteous. That came from Calvin mainly from Kelvin, although uh, certainly Luther and Melanchthon understood that. Um, but, it, you know, the idea, Ken, is that, well, Christ obeyed, so we don't have to obey. We're commanded to obey, we ought to obey, but really it has nothing to do with our salvation because Christ did that by obeying on the cross. And uh, so that, you know, that certainly runs against uh, everything that you've said. I mean, it's uh, that it's not by faith alone that uh, you, that you do good works and uh, baptism as well. So uh, I think that brings us up to speed. So I'll just let you continue from there. Right. So in Acts chapter two, after you know Peter preaches to the Jews, and they ask him, you know, what must we do to be saved? You know, Peter doesn't say, "Oh, Jesus did it all. You're good to go. Don't worry about it." <laughs> All you have to do is believe in Jesus, you know. But no, that's not what Peter says. He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And, you know, baptism makes us a member of the body of Christ then, and we actually receive intrinsic righteousness. So the Catholic Church does teach that, you know, if you believe in Jesus, you have imputed righteousness at that point. And that's why when somebody is in RCIA— thinking about becoming Catholic, you know, we don't baptize them right away. We do baptize them at the Easter Vigil if they haven't already been baptized. Mm -hmm. And because the church teaches that, you know, believing in Jesus is sufficient, you know, as your catechumen, learning the faith. Um, and then when you're baptized, now you're in the club for sure. Um, and you get actually intrinsic righteousness. Now, if you die in that interim period between believing and getting baptized, the Catholic Church has a teaching called um, 
baptism of desire. So if you believe in Jesus, you desire to do what Jesus taught we have to do. And that is to get baptized. So that's where that teaching comes from. It's biblical uh, because Jesus didn't tell his apostles, just go out and have people believe in me. He told them to go out and teach them and baptize them. And all through Acts, you know, um, like Peter goes to the home of Cornelius, uh, teaches them about the faith. They get baptized. He sees that they receive the Holy Spirit. They get baptized after that. Uh, Philip talks to the Ethiopian eunuch. He comes to believe. He gets baptized. Paul talks to Lydia and her household. They come to believe, and the whole household is baptized. So it's all, it's the same procedure all throughout the Bible. Nowhere does the Bible just say, oh, all you have to do is believe and you're good to go. Right. If you believe, you'll do what Jesus taught you have to do. So the question is, like, who has the correct interpretation of Paul? You know, whether it's what Martin Luther taught that all you have to do is believe or have faith in Jesus or do you have to do works? Well, uh, St. Augustine wrote about this, you know, in the late 300s, early 400s. And he wrote about Paul's reference to works of the law. So we have the Qumran community, you know, before the time of Christ. And then we have uh, St. Augustine writing about it. Um, but you won't have any church fathers writing about the Protestant version of the interpretation of Paul and works of the law, only the Catholic version. But this is what St. Augustine has to say. Here he begins to demonstrate in what sense the grace of faith is sufficient for justification without the works of the law. But so that this question may be carefully treated and no one may be deceived by ambiguities, we must first understand what the works of the law are, or that the works of the law are twofold. They reside partly in the ceremonial ordinances and partly in morals. To the ordinances belong the circumcision of the flesh, the weekly Sabbath, new moons, sacrifices, and all the innumerable observations of this kind. But to morality belong, you shall not kill, you shall not commit murder, adultery, you shall not bear false witness, and so on. Could the apostle possibly not care whether a Christian were a murderer or an adulterer or chaste or innocent in the way that he does not care whether he is circumcised or uncircumcised in the flesh? Of course not. He therefore is especially concerned with the works that consist in ceremonial ordinances, Although he indicates that the others are sometimes bound up with them, but near the end of the letter, he deals separately with those works that consist in the morals, and he does this briefly, but he speaks at greater length regarding the ceremonial works. So the, the big picture here is like Paul is explaining to the communities he's writing to in his letters that they're not saved by the Jewish ceremonial laws, but we do have to keep the moral law. And we find this in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, where uh, 
the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians and the apostles are discussing, you know, how much of the Jewish law do we still have to keep? And of course, they decide that counsel that, you know, we no longer have to keep the Jewish ceremonial laws, just the moral law. And they send out a decree from the church um, to all the other churches, and that decree is binding on all Christians. But even though they send out a decree, you know, there's still those that don't want to agree with the decree, and they fight against that decree. And so Paul still has to keep reminding the different Christian communities where the Jewish Christians are trying to impose the Jewish works of the law on the Gentile Christians that were not saved by works. And so if you get the whole idea that Paul's writing about, that uh, Paul is writing about how we're not saved by the ceremonial, ceremonial works of the law, we're saved by faith in Jesus, and faith in Jesus requires us to live as Jesus calls us to. And that's the moral law. And Paul writes about how we have to keep the moral law in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 5, where he writes, if you commit these sins, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So obviously Paul is still concerned about the moral law, even though Protestants try to claim that he's not concerned about the moral law. It doesn't matter what you do. Um, and somebody else had mentioned how, like, uh, we're saved by faith alone in Jesus because Jesus did everything for us and all we have to do is believe and then we're automatically saved. And as Catholics, we can agree that Jesus' death and resurrection, death on the cross and his resurrection, provides sufficient grace to save everyone. But how that grace is applied to us is where we have a conflict with our Protestant brothers and sisters. Protestants believe that all that grace is just applied to you on top of your sinfulness, and whereas we Catholics recognize what the Bible teaches and that through baptism, all that previous sin is wiped away through the washing of the water, uh, and we now have intrinsic righteousness. We are a member of the body of Christ. Uh, Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that if a man goes into a prostitute, he unites the body of Christ to that prostitute. And so we know that we are members of the body of Christ. Christ lives within us, and we are part of Christ acting in the real world. So once we get that basic concept down, the whole Bible makes sense. We don't have to worry about, you know, James chapter 2 being in conflict with what uh, Paul supposedly teaches in Romans chapter 3 or something. It's all one part when you get it right. And the part where in John chapter 20, where Jesus gives the apostles the authority to forgive sins, uh, which they did on after that. Yeah. Uh, for Protestants who think that, you know, all you have to do is believe in Jesus and your sins don't matter, you know, we Catholics recognize that Jesus gave his authority to forgive sins to his apostles for a reason. And we've been doing it for 2,000 years. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, yes. Yeah. So this is important to remember. It's because 
you know, if you just pick up, especially Paul, and you see works, works a law, you might think, well, this is just talking about good works when it has a totally different understanding. And you did a great job outlining that different understanding. Um, yeah, so you want to move on to the next objection or, uh, um, or further? Yeah, we'll move on to the next one here. I think we've, okay. we've covered that as, as much as we can in a reasonable amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> There's whole books written on it. So <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Um, so my friend Marie T. writes, you know, why do you say eating Rome's Eucharist is needed for eternal life? When your religion denies this in the catechism, uh, let's see, paragraph 819. And paragraph 819 says, Furthermore, many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church. The written word of God, the life of grace, faith, hope, and charity, with the other interior gifts of the Holy Spirit, as well as visible elements. Christ's spirit uses these churches and ecclesial communities as means of salvation, whose power derives from the fullness of grace and truth that Christ has entrusted to the Catholic Church. All these things come from Christ and lead to him and are in themselves calls to Catholic unity. This part of the Catechism talks about the Catholic Church and its relationship with other ecclesial communities. And we'll unpack that some more after the break. All right. Great cliffhanger there, Ken. Uh, we're chatting with Ken Litchfield, answering common objections. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Ken Litchfield, answering common objections. So, Ken, uh, great cliffhanger for those who are just tuning in. Uh, the objection is, why do we teach that receiving the Eucharist is necessary when the Catechism apparently seems to say it, it's not? And you read that passage from the Catechism. I'll just let you take it from there. Sure. So uh, the Catechism does teach that, you know, if you have some of the truth of the Catholic faith, you can uh, live well enough to actually go to heaven if you don't know what, the, what else the Catholic Church teaches. Um, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2, that the natural man can actually be saved if he follows the natural law written on his heart, um, even if he doesn't know anything about Judaism or Christianity at that time. Um, and Protestants, you know, because they have most of our Bible, they can know enough about Jesus that they too can be saved if they don't know what the Catholic Church already teaches and why it teaches it. Um, and we leave that judgment up to God. You know, a lot of Protestants are misinformed through their preacher. Uh, a lot of Protestants um, just are totally ignorant of what the Catholic Church teaches. Even a lot of cradle Catholics are ignorant of what the Catholic Church actually teaches. They just go to church on Sunday and hopefully, <laughs> and then they go on with the rest of their life. Um, there's even more Catholics that don't even go to church every Sunday. <laughs> but I'm not one of those. I'm one of those every Sunday Catholics. Good. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, 
what the Bible actually teaches, and of course that the Catholic Church also teaches, is that uh, the grace of perseverance is also needed for eternal life, as taught in Matthew chapter 24. Um, and it's Jesus that says in John chapter 6 that we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. Now, if Protestants don't have that proper understanding of what uh, Jesus is actually teaching and what the Catholic Church actually teaches about it, you know, they can maybe get into heaven, you know, by claiming ignorance, and we leave that judgment to God alone. Um, they're preacher may have, you know, made a, a case for them to refuse that. Um, but it's really interesting in John chapter 6 that uh, the Jews that don't believe Jesus leave him. And the Protestants that don't believe what Jesus is plainly teaching here, three times he says that you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and the Greek words used for eating are actually upgraded each time to actual physical eating. Hmm. Um, but they don't believe them, just like the J Jews that didn't believe Jesus, and so they leave Jesus. And that's what happens when they leave Jesus' church, the Catholic Church. Uh, now, even the apostles that, that were present at the time, they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, but... Uh, Peter, as Peter says, you know, to whom else should we go? So they stick with Jesus, at least. And then at the Last Supper, Jesus explains to them how we can eat his flesh and drink his blood. And he covers that in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke 22. And it's also covered by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in each version of the Last Supper, uh, Jesus says of the bread, this is my body, and he says of the wine, this is my blood. And when uh, Jesus catches up to the uh, apostles that were leaving Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus, we find that at the end of the day, they stop to eat, and Jesus blesses the bread at the at that meal, and that they finally come to recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. So later on in the Bible, whenever it refers to breaking of the bread, like it did back in Acts chapter 2, what that is is the representation of the Last Supper, which is an, a development of the uh, Passover meal. And let's see, the this kind of relates back to the other one also. Like, Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, and that sacrifice is what saves us, but how that sacrifice is applied to us is where the dispute is. Um, but every time a Protestant isn't, is saved, it's not because Jesus dies again for them. He did his part 2,000 years ago. What saves us is our acceptance of that gift of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And so that person goes from a point where they didn't believe in Jesus to a point where they did believe in Jesus. Jesus didn't die again for them. He doesn't change, but that person changes. And they change 
by assenting to faith in Jesus, which is a work that they do. You know, you can't get away from that work because Jesus doesn't die again for that person when they come to faith. He did his part 2,000 years ago. Hmm. Right. So uh, there, there's no disconnect then. You know, it's not like, um, you know, uh, something took place in the past and it has no application in the present, but rather... You know, it's like you said, it's the application of the redemption that's really where we differ. You know, we, no one doubts that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient, right? It's just right. how do we apply the the merits of that death? Yep. And it gets applied to us not just by faith alone, but by some work that we do. You know, right. coming right. to believe in Jesus, getting baptized. You know, a baby does nothing to earn God's favor, but we baptize them and get them started in the right direction with that initial gift of grace through baptism. Um, that, you know, Acts chapter yeah. two tells us. You know, the yeah, that, that seems to be, you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if you want a test case, that, that's what we believe. I mean, infant baptism is perfect, right? I mean, it's not like the baby did anything to earn its salvation. Right. Yeah. And we give that baby the gift of faith. Yeah. Um, since we're running real low on time here, um, I'll just mention this from my friend Kashif in Pakistan. Um, and the Protestants there, you know, are insisting that, you know, dead people can't do anything for you. So there's no sense in praying for them or ask praying to them to ask Jesus for a favor. Um, and they refer to, uh, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 14, where it says, The dead do not live. Shades do not rise. Shades here is like ghosts. Mm. Uh, because you are you have punished and destroyed them and wiped out all memory of them. But they have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nations and you are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. Um, and it's good to read the whole chapter, but due to time, we'll just kind of focus on this part here. So this verse 14, where it says, uh, the dead do not live, uh, they point to that and say, see, these people that died, they're not living. They don't know anything about the, our prayers here on earth or our prayers for them. But you have, this is, uh, this chapter 26 is Judah's song of victory. So he's talking about how um, after the Israelites defeat their enemy, this is their song of victory. And the enemy that they have defeated, those are the ones that are dead and do not live because they were not followers of the one true God. They died in their sin and they're on their way to hell. Um, if not at that time or at the final judgment, they will be thrown into the pit of hell. Um, so they're the ones that are not alive, and they're not worth praying to, and there is no need to, uh, no way to pray them into heaven. <laughs> no, no redemption for them anymore. Right. Yeah. You know, and uh, one uh, pass, one part of that that stuck out at me was that their their memory lives on no more. 
So obviously that can't apply to the Jews. I mean, the Old Testament is nothing but a memory of those who have died, right? I mean, it's so it, it certainly had a different context. And like you said, if you study the whole chapter, uh, it's talking about those that were defeated by Judah, like the non-believers. Yeah, right. that's great, Ken. Hey, uh, why don't we why don't we uh, end there? Because I want you. To share like you usually do when you come on the show about this great freebie offer that you do through email. Right. So my book, How Old Is Your Church, uh, t- contains my top 25 writings uh, from my apologetic library, which is about 250 writings now. Um, and I will send you the whole thing for free if you just send me an email at kenlitchfield sixty one at gmail.com and I'll send the whole thing to you for free. You even get a free PDF copy of my book. So if you're not sure if you want to spend the whole $6 on the book, uh, (laughs) you can get a free PDF copy and say, Oh, okay. I'll buy the book. (laughs) Right. And I suggest you buy the book soon because printing prices are going up. So the, the book price might have to go up to $7. Yeah, and uh, especially if uh, maybe you run an apologetics class for your parish or a group, uh, Ken's book would be a great textbook. You know, it's it's very readable, it's not super lengthy, and it's packed with great information. Plus, you get all the other stuff, right? So it's it's how can you lose with a freebie? That's why I said. Right. And uh, again, what's the email address again? Ken. Litchfield61 at gmail.com. Or you can look me up on Facebook and we'll get connected that way and I'll pass on the information to you. You know, send me a message on Facebook or send me a friend request and we'll get hooked up there. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's great. Uh, you don't, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, do you, Ken? Uh, when other people have done the research and, you know, put it all down in writing. It's great when you can use their material to help out as well. Right. And I got a truckload of information for you. All you have to do is look it up. All right. There you go. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Gary. Look forward to being on with you. Who knows? Maybe next week. (laughs) Maybe next week. You never know. Well, hey, Ken Litchfield, folks, yeah, definitely uh, uh, give him an email and get a hold of that information. Great stuff. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. I'll do this thing we call Hands on Apologetics. Bye, everyone. Have a great day.